You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. What a joy it is to be with you this morning and to share this worship experience together and to open up God's Word with you. We have, in the last several months actually, we've been going through the life of David, studying this amazing life of this man of God. We've seen him in some of his best moments. We've seen him in some of his worst moments. Today is the second to last time we're going to be in this series. We'll hit it one more time next week. Um, And then we're going to have our Christmas series. And then we're going to dive into the book of James. And the book of James is going to be a launching pad for us in 2021 to do the things that Shayla mentioned in terms of having a strategy to care for orphans, to care for the most vulnerable orphans and widows around the world. We're, we're going to have, as a church, a comprehensive plan all in for this important ministry. And we can't wait to share the news about that in days to come. But today we find ourselves here in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And I would like, if you would, to please stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's word. And let's hear these last few words from the book of 2 Samuel. Most of our time in the Life of David series has been in 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, some of his life is, is creeps over into 1 Kings. We're going to touch on that next week. But here we sort of have the rest of the story, the end of the story. And I have to tell you, as we hear this, it's not how we would like David's story to end. But listen to it. Let's start off too good. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? But the King's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the King to number the people of Israel. Now, for time's sake, let's look down at verse 10. Notice this. We see that that David realizes here in verse 10 that what he's done is wrong. It's too late. But he says, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, we see in the next few verses, which we're going to skip over for now, but come back and pick up later, the, the punishment for sin. There's three options given. David chooses the option to fall under the wrath of God. Now, in verse 15, we hear this. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now skip down to the end 
of the chapter, the last verse of this book. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray. Lord, this story poses a lot of questions that, that our minds uh, would like to have answers for. And we're not going to get perfect answers today as to all the reasons why this book has to end like this. But God, help us to see how powerful and how negative sin and pride can be. And help us, Lord, to look to you, to see that there is a sacrifice, that there is a hope. Lord, there is on that hill far away, on Calvary, our salvation. Point our eyes in that direction, Lord, as we go through this story today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you all, but I I love a good story, and I really love a good story that has a good ending. It doesn't have to be happy all the time, but I like stories that have some closure, that tie up the loose ends, that, you know, help me just kind of move on to the next book or whatever it is. Certainly, 2 Samuel 24 does not fit that bill, does not close in a way where we feel that it's, it's satisfied our hearts. We, we find ourselves kind of shrugging our shoulders and we say, what a terrible way for this book to end. I have recommended to, uh, to several families, and I think it's in one of our newsletters that we have, uh, a book called The Bronze Bow by Elizabeth George Spear. She won a Newbery Award. If you know anything about literature for children, you know it's a big deal. Uh, back in the 1960s, I, I highly recommend this book. But I mention it to you because as I'm reading through the book, and I'm not gonna, I want to spoil it because I'd like you to actually read this book. It's a really good book. But um, as I'm reading this book, I think I know where the story's going. I think I know what the last 10, 15 pages is going to look like. I'm really excited about it. I'm like, oh, I can't wait for this main character to have this happen and this happen. And that is not how Miss Spear decided to end her book. She did not tie up any of the loose ends that I thought she should. And here I have enjoyed this book so much. And then there's this ending and, and it's forcing me to imagine. Can you imagine this? To imagine the rest of the story. To use my own thoughts as to what would have happened next. Well, I'm kind of lazy when it comes to my reading. And I would rather them tell me how it ends. Now that says a lot about me, not so much about Miss Spear. But I thought the book was going to end a different way. Well, if we're being honest, as we read through First and Second Samuel, it seems to me that First Samuel chapter 23, take a look, if you will, just if you have your copy of Scripture open, notice what it says, at least in the ESV, the heading there over chapter 23 is, the last words of David. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good ending. What's wrong with just ending it in chapter 23? If you look at David's words, now, there is a little bit of darkness there in verses 5, 6, and 7, but, but really, if you look at verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, I mean, even there, verse 4, it kind of has a poetic ending. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That sounds like a great way to end this book. End it right there with poetic imagery and feeling good about the world, and I'll be happy, but no... No. Very few human, human stories end with poetry. Many times the end of the story is a story that's dark and sinister. We know that. We understand that. We understand that here the poor ending is necessary because that's what happened. 
2 Samuel 24 is the poorest of poor endings because we see, instead of David's last words, we actually see David's last sin. And here we have a man who should have known better than to, to, to take this census. It was not a, a great idea. I mean, a census sounds boring anyway. But as many preachers have done over the years, it seems like we're all fascinated with counting for some reason. We want to attach our success with metrics, with measurables, with numbers. And it seems like that's what David wants to do. And he does this without the okay of the Lord. And so what starts out as something boring, I mean, I can see your eyes glazing over from all the way up here. A census? We're going to have a, a sermon about a census? Well, let me tell you what's not boring, and that is the wrath of God. Because that's where this leads. A boring census leads to a devastating plague. 70,000 souls die. It is an ending that we would rather not see. But what we want to do today, and let me set you up for this, as sad as it is, as sad as the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel is, this truly is an amazing story because it doesn't just stop here like it seems to. It is actually pointing us to the rest of the story. To a hill far away where the old rugged cross is going to show us the solution. So here's what's beautiful about this. This story seems to end poorly, but it's pushing us toward the New Testament. It's pushing us toward the Gospels so that we can see that God is going to finish the story in the most beautiful and profound fashion. He's going to finish the story with what we would call the Christmas story. And so these ideas that we're going through, they seem so far removed from Christmas, but the funny thing is, the beautiful thing is, is that a chapter like this is teeing up the infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke that we'll be looking at here in the weeks to come. It's a great transition, actually, but we need to start here where this chapter is, and where it is, is that sin is always senseless. Everything about this chapter, if I haven't made it clear already, just reeks of senselessness. The, the census is senseless. Now say that with me, right? Can you say it? The census is senseless. Now say it five more times and you're going to be tongue-tied, right? It's a hard thing to say, but it's senseless. One commentator says it that way. I think it's, it's brilliant. I think it's true. There's a lot of futility in this passage. It is so obviously futile that a knucklehead like Joab... Now follow me, a knucklehead like Joab, Joab, you know, he was the guy that you went to not for wisdom and counsel, but if you needed somebody to get killed, you called Joab. Joab was a, was a killer, that's what, he was a warrior, he, was, he had hands trained for war, but even this guy, kind of think Rocky Balboa, you know, slobbering and everything and can't remember his name, this guy gets it, he goes, David. Why in the world are you counting people at a time like this? God has blessed you. You're at the end of your journey. You don't need to worry about things like numbers, but here you are counting. Well, it may be senseless, but that's what sin does. Sin causes us to do things that just don't make sense. And in case you think that you're... Uh, Beyond this, and this is the thing that drives me nuts about the church today, is that we think that if we've grown up in church, if we've been around church all of our lives, that somehow we've graduated past this. Listen, David wasn't a mighty man of God whose heart was after the Lord, whose heart beat for God. And here in the last chapter, so to speak, one of the last things we see about him, he falls into sin. Why do you think you're better than that? 
Just in case you've forgotten the Romans road that many of you, uh, it helped lead you to Christ. Romans 3.23 says it very simply, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And everybody knows that passage and everybody remembers that passage, but what we often don't do is read the verses uh, about 11, 12 verses ahead, which says this, or behind actually, Romans 3, 11 and 12 tells us all have turned aside together, they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Listen, God's word is very clear that even the best among us are going to always constantly and continually be plagued by this thing called sin. You can say that it's senseless, but that doesn't mean that it's not impacting you. Look at this text again. Look at the very first words. Again, the anger of the Lord. Verse 1 here in chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And we need to ask the question, what was the other time? Well, it points back to uh, chapter 21. Now, we don't have time to go through this, but let me put it to you like this. Don't think for a minute that sin stays isolated. Your sins have a ripple effect. And in chapter 21, what we learn is, is that the sins of Saul, now get this, Saul, like a king before David, his sins had caused there to be sin in the land, and that sin hadn't been purged out yet, and that led to a famine. So chapter 21 speaks of this famine in the land. Now, I'm telling you all this because the minute you think that sin is not that big a deal, all you have to do is read almost any chapter in Scripture and you'll find out otherwise. Sin is devastating. It leaves its mark. David, again, fails to see the sin in his own heart. There is poor leadership, not only from the days of Saul, but even during David's day. We look through 2 Samuel and we see example after example that it wasn't just a David problem. This was a Hebrew problem in general. For instance, think about Absalom. Absalom was a bad egg, but he led a lot of people against God and his anointed. We have a later rebellion that we don't spend as much time reading about. It's a smaller thing in the text, but it was a big deal for David. And that was the rebellion of Sheba. There was sin present. The sin was senseless. And the punishment was sure. Joab could get it, but David didn't. Joab says, let's not count. This isn't wise. May God bless us, but not, not, through this, not this way, not, not through this means. But David goes ahead with it anyway. He does not take Joab's counsel and he moves forward. Now, this is a big deal. I want you to notice this in the text. As we look here at these verses 5 through 8, we'll see it took 285 days to complete. That's about the same length of time it's going to take Nevada to figure out who won the presidency. Counting is hard. And we're seeing that in our culture today. See, we have all these computers and all this advanced technology and counting is still hard. But I want you to notice this, 285 days. They had to count 1.3 million people. It was a bunch of work. Now let me just say this. In one way, you could say, well, this is harmless. They're out there and they're, they're counting people and it's no big deal. But I want to tell you, it looks like busy work to me. And let's just think of it this way. If your life is all busy with no blessing, should you be concerned? Yes. See, I even gave you the answer to the rhetorical question. What, how gracious that is of me. So here's the thing. When we look at this, it looks... 
harmless. It's, it's, it's just like busy work. It's doing something that seems to be, you know, not sinful, not necessarily wrong. But I think this points for us in our culture, in our time, to a larger issue. And that is, we are a people who are very much used to being busy, but it seems like we are a people who are rarely blessed. In the church today, too many of us are doing busy work instead of allowing God to truly bless us, empower us, anoint us, dare I say, that we would be filled with the Spirit and do work that changes lives forever. Too many times we are busy and not blessed. So we were talking about this with a, with a group of the staff. It was Kayla, Miss Kayla, who said, busyness is not a badge of honor. And I put that in quotes and I'm giving her credit because that's exactly right. But that's how we tend to think of it, church. We tend to think about how busy we are. But here we see that busyness wasn't enough. It was about the heart. David was moving without the Lord's command. And we are told, incited, he incited the anger, the wrath of God. Oh, friends, this is not a good thing. We are told in 1 Chronicles 21.1, the other side of this story that the chronicler tells us that it literally says that Satan rose up. In other words, what David is involved in here, the sin that is senseless, it enters in because of satanic attack. Something that seems so innocent like a census literally had Satan behind it. Do you realize that even your busy work can be satanic? It can be influenced by dark forces. We need to realize that spiritual warfare is a reality and it's always surrounding us. And too often it's overcoming us. Sin is always senseless. When Jesus isn't your Lord... Let me tell you, you're going to make a mess of things. Look back on your biggest failures. Listen to me, believer in this room, believer at home. Think about this. Look back at your biggest failures. Think back to the times when you really missed the will of God and you will not be able to make much sense out of it now. Your thoughts, your actions, your aims. You're going to be like, what was I thinking? Listen, sin is always senseless, but it is never harmless. Sin is senseless, but it is always harmful. It will destroy you. It can destroy you, and it brings about the wrath of God. So let's talk about that next as we look at verses 10 through 17 of chapter 24, wrath wrapped in mercy. This is a great little phrase that a commentator gave. I'm stealing this from Dale Ralph Davis, I think it's a beautiful way to explain this part of the text. And I love it because that little phrase, wrath wrapped in mercy, doesn't make much sense. It's a little bit bit of of a paradox, and I guess that's why I like it. But when we look at the text, that's basically what we're going to see. It's what the text reveals to be true. Now, I've already said to you that that when it comes to uh, our, our hindsight, as it were, when we look back at our sins, it's easy to say now, well, yeah, that was wrong and that was wrong. And why did I go this way and why did I go that way? But that 2020 vision seems to be very much lacking in the moment. Why couldn't David see it at verse 1? In verse 1, he's telling Joab, let's go number. Verse 2, Joab says, let's not do that. So here's the Lord working through somebody else, trying to keep him from making this big mistake. And David doesn't see it, not until verse 10. Now think about this. It's true for you too. We always seem to realize our sin problems a few verses too late. We 
understand our sin a few verses too late. Now, we can look back and say, how could I be so blind, so dull, so silly? However, in the moment, the sin was all you could see. When the enemy is attacking you, he is going to be um, uh, uh, disguised as an angel of light many times. What, what your flesh wants seems to be okay and right. You are going to do your best to try to argue or to make sense out of the passion, the desire of your heart. But it'll kill your heart. Look at verse 10. It's interesting here. The original language is actually helpful. Notice it says, David's heart struck him. The literal Hebrew rendering could be, rendering could be, David's heart killed him. That's what it says literally, that David's heart, not just struck him, but the language literally says, David's heart killed him. It shows his tender heart. It shows that he realizes here too late that he has messed up in a big way. Nathan the prophet isn't present, but in verse 11, the prophet Gad, G-A-D, he is there and he brings, the prophet does to David, the prophet Gad brings this, this verdict from the Lord in verse 11. And no matter how you slice it, the price is going to be high. But the three options are basically three years of famine, three months of fleeing from his enemies, or three days of pestilence in the land. We see that in verses 11 through 13. This is a classic lose, lose, lose scenario. It's not a win, win, win. It's a lose, lose, lose. David has to pick one of these options. And he picks the wrath of God. Oh, friends, the pain doesn't keep David from trusting in the promise keeper. He knows he has to trust in God. He must trust in even the wrath of God because he knows the wrath of God is wrapped in mercy. Now, when you look at this, you say, okay, famine or, or being on the run, those seem to be easier options, but I don't think they were. I think David makes the right choice here. I think he understands that the Father's love is always going to be better than the wrath of man. Now let me explain this. I think this is something, I know we have a lot of parents in this room and many of you right now raising kids and have this as a part of your life. I'm going to tell you that when we discipline our children, unless we're sick in some way, and I guess some people over the years have been sick as parents and have not been good at discipline, but a healthy parent is going to discipline their child. When a child does something wrong, they're going to make sure that that child understands that that was not acceptable. It wasn't good. Now, the child, no matter what punishment you give them, isn't going to like the punishment because we're human beings and we never like to be told, no, or you're wrong. But the father, the mother, loves the child to discipline the child to keep that child from making a bigger mistake down the road. Any parent understands this. So bring that experience into this text and realize that David is trusting the Heavenly Father. He knows that the mercy of God is paramount. That the wrath of God is wrapped in mercy. But it doesn't seem like, the wrath doesn't seem like a small thing because 70,000 souls perish. The angel of the Lord from Dan to Beersheba begins to, to, to knock people out. A plague comes in the land and it isn't stopped until it comes up. Now, in my mind, when I read this story, it's almost like a tsunami, like a big wave, like a tidal wave, if you will. It's almost like David is he's up on Mount Zion, on what would become the Temple Mount, by the way. He's on the Temple Mount and he's looking over, let's just say to his right. And I don't know how, but he saw this wave of death and destruction 
And he's praying and he's asking God to stop it. And the angel of the Lord comes and stops it right there on Mount Zion. We are told that it stops right there in this place at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Isn't it interesting that this is the spot where it stops. It's owned by a Jebusite who would have been an enemy of God. We talked about the Jebusites and how they would, they would make fun of the people of God. We know that. But, but here's what's interesting. This same spot, if we go back in Bible history, is the same spot where Abraham offered up Isaac. There's something special going on here. A lot of storylines are converging here. Now, remember what I said at the beginning. This seems to be a terrible way to end the book of 2 Samuel, but it's actually the most beautiful way because what it's doing is it's bringing all of these lines, if you will, of history and centering them on that temple mount, reminding us that sin is serious business and that sin can only be stopped by sacrifice. That's our last point here. This chapter connects us with not just the wrath of God, but, but the mercy and the love of God. Your sins are serious business, so serious that we see here that 70,000 souls perish because of David's sin, because of Israel's sin. Sin is serious business, but sin can be stopped by sacrifice. In the Old Testament, those sacrifices were blood. Here in this spot, we know that David would build the temple. And in this very vicinity, this would be the spot where countless animals would be sacrificed here on an altar to pay for the sins of Israel. It is in this place David builds this altar and he builds, Solomon will build this temple to remember how high the price is of sin. But even those sacrifices had a shelf life. They weren't perfect. They weren't final. They weren't all-encompassing. Those sacrifices pointed forward, not just back to Abraham and Isaac, but forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. We see here in the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel, one of the early bright lights pointing towards the gospel and ultimately pointing toward Calvary. The old song speaks of a hill far away. For us in this story, the hill far away is not just Zion where we see this story come to a conclusion where the plague stops, but we know that the hill far away that would finally and forever and completely satisfy the requirements of human sin was a hill called Calvary. It is only on Calvary's cross that the, the Son of God gave His life for us. This is the fulfillment. This is the completion. This is the beautiful arc of the story and where it lands of the whole Bible. That on a hill called Calvary, we could be saved. In the end, your sin is only stopped by sacrifice. And only a blood sacrifice satisfies the price of our sin. But what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, notice this, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So if you can imagine, this 24th chapter is like a center point. It reaches back all the way to Abraham. It extends to the point of Christ with the temple sacrifices, but it ultimately points us to Jesus. Hear me. Every one of these stories that we read about in the Old Testament, in fact, from Genesis to Revelation, the main character is always Jesus. The story is always pointing you to the hope of the cross, which is a reminder that no matter where you are in your story, it doesn't matter if you are young or you are old, every single one of us are in desperate need of a hill far away. Where stood an old rugged cross. And in that shameful, sad, dark place, a light shone 2,000 years ago that is bright enough to chase away every bit of darkness in this room and beyond. On a hill far away, on the old rugged cross, Jesus died for you and me. Paying a price for our sin that we could never pay. First Peter 2.24 puts it like this. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Have you? First Peter 2.24 is speaking to people who have received the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. If you are apart from the blood of Jesus, then you still remain under the wrath of God. The only way to be delivered from the wrath of God, the the plague and the pestilence of sin, is to have Jesus cover you with his blood. And what that blood does, I know that's a violent image. I know that's even a a gross image in some ways, but, but the Bible speaks of the covering, the propitiation. And what it does is, is it causes the wrath of God to deflect off of you. It doesn't hit you because Jesus received all that. First Peter 2.24 tells us in his body, he received the penalty and the punishment for your sin. And it all happened on a hill far away. I don't like, or I didn't like, how Second Samuel ended until I realized that it was not ending at all. It was pointing me to Calvary. And I want you to realize this. Your story right now might be difficult and sad, but this doesn't have to be where your story ends. Your story does not have to have an incompleteness, a darkness. Your story, if you will allow the Holy Spirit to carry you to that hill far away, your story can end with the glorious hope of Jesus that by His grace you are saved. Every person here in this room, anyone at home watching, Jesus is calling. And sometimes it does feel like He's so far away but I believe he's here. And I believe he's tugging at your heart, begging you to listen. If the Spirit is saying Jesus is Lord, by all means, receive him now. What happened on a hill far away 
may that bring you to this altar that you may receive Jesus in your heart. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit ridgecrestbaptist.org.